1: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and AudiobookRadio.net. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
1: On today's show, author and illustrator Adrian Tamina discusses his new graphic collection, Killing and Dying. Then PW senior bookselling editor Judith Rosen hits the highlights of some exciting events for books for young adults.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan.
1: So we have a new James Patterson at number one, or I should just say in the James Patterson slot. He kind of owns it, except when he... Let somebody else rent it for a little while. Um, this one is co-written with David Ellis. It's called Murder House. Mm. And like that, that title just tells you everything. It's a, a masterpiece of concision. you know exactly what a James Patterson book called Murder House is going to be. Right. And it's that book. Right. So that's uh, number one on our hardcover fiction list. Uh, sold 46,000 copies out of the gate, which is very impressive. Uh, number four, uh, we have After You by Jojo Moyes. This is uh, this is kind of a bit of a surprise. Um, she's very well known for writing a book called Me Before You. And apparently all of her fans just wanted and wanted and wanted a sequel. And she kept saying, no, 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 I'm not going to do a sequel. I'm not going to do a sequel. And then she woke up with an idea H. for the sequel, and here it is. Um, so uh, that's that's doing very well. We don't have a review of it yet, but uh, it's at number four mm-hmm. on the bestseller list with about 15,000 copies. So like that gives you an idea of the difference between Patterson and just about anyone else. It's yeah. really right. uh, three times as many sales as you know, the right. books that... Um,
0: well, we were talking at our uh, editorial meeting uh, this morning about just looking looking on. Uh, Forbes had a list of top selling authors, and and again, Patterson was on the top of triple course. the number of the next next one. I think worth about ninety million or something unbelievable. That's um, a lot. Though we also did point out that he does uh, he does have a program where uh, he he does support uh, independent booksellers, but also. Uh, offers uh, bonuses to 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 uh, deserving workers in these bookstores. So that's really uh, great, which is very cool.
1: So I'm I'm glad he's putting that money to use. Yeah. Uh, So down at number seven, we have The Aeronauts Windlass by Jim Butcher. Um, So the sales numbers on this are also interesting. Jim Butcher is uh, best known for creating the Dresden Files series, very long running urban fantasy series, briefly made into a TV show, though that didn't work out so well. But the last Dresden Files book sold about 50,000 copies on its first week out. This is the start of a new series, Unrelated, uh, which is kind of a steampunk series. And uh, this sold only about 12,000 copies. So for some reason, readers who are really enjoying the Dresden Files, which is kind of the noir wizard private investigator kind of thing the mean streets of Chicago may not be so interested in what we called a sweeping fantastical epic with pseudo Victorian sensibilities Mm. but we gave it a starred review um, Said people who are fans of the steampunk milieu will have uh, a very good time with this one Um, lots of airships and politics and uh, sort of big scale epic fantasy stuff Um, Butcher has tried his hand at epic fantasy before with the Codex Alaris series um, which has not been so successful. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see right. what happens with this one. Uh, moving down the list a little bit, number nine is Pretty Girls by Karen Slaughter, uh, a standalone novel. And uh, Slaughter the author of Cop Town. And uh, this is another thriller uh, in which a, a woman's life is turned upside down when her husband is stabbed to death and she finds a series of nasty videos on his home computer. Mm-hmm. And uh, was it there, this unsettling tale is full of chilling violence, um, one for those really hardcore thriller readers right. out there. Looks like a fun ride. Down at number 13 is Shadow Play by Iris Johansson, the 18th Eve Duncan novel. Uh, Eve Duncan is a forensic sculptor. She uh, does her best to recreate missing bones and missing parts of bones and to try and, and get a sense of uh, what was there. And she agrees to do a reconstruction job on the skull of a nine-year-old girl. Mm. Um, and hopefully they can figure out the girl's identity and then find out who killed her. So again, uh, lots of pretty grim stuff in here but we say that Johansson delivers a no holds barred mystery that maintains suspense throughout and boasts a cast of multifaceted characters down at number 20 The Heart Goes Last by Margaret Atwood I'm going to daringly call this science fiction because that's what it is Atwood doesn't love the term Uh, she prefers speculative fiction but uh, she's certainly speculating uh, about some interesting in this case social dynamics Uh, This is set in uh, perhaps something like a near future or an alternate world uh, where couples, uh, citizens are required to share their homes with other couples. But uh, they alternate each month between going to prison and being at home. So when you're in prison, someone else gets your home and then you swap. Um, And so it's an interesting Uh, arrangement uh, people uh, part of this is just a testament to how people can make anything work (laughs) once they get used to it it just seems like the new normal Uh, we say Atwood is fond of intricate plot work and the novel takes a long time to set up the action but once it hits the last third it gains an unstoppable momentum Mm. Uh, larger ideas about the hidden monsters lurking and facile totalitarianism lots of sex And The Ability of the Heart to Keep Fighting Despite Long Odds. Very interesting novel uh, for fans of social science fiction, uh, looking at social ideas and uh, the ways that people interact with one another in different circumstances. And we
0: gave that a star.
1: And we did give that a star. We did indeed. Indeed. Uh, and finally, down at 21, 22, and 38, we have the first big Christmas romances of the season. Uh, I did a roundup of these a, right. a couple months ago. Um, it's always fun to watch these come out. Any kind of romance that you can imagine can have Christmas tacked on to it. Um, so, I, I, my favorite is still the one about werewolves who are also Navy SEALs at Christmas time. Uh, which is of course called <laughs> a seal wolf Christmas right. oh, from a couple wow. of years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, it just, it's so perfect. Yeah. Uh, and this year uh, I think my favorite was a cowboy firefighter for Christmas because wow, you're getting you know, all of them right there. Who wouldn't want to find that under her tree? Right. Uh, right. So these are all contemporaries. Um, you know, pretty much uh, standard fare from all of these authors. Susan Mallory has marry me at Christmas, which mm-hmm. is set in her small town of fool's gold, California. Um, Linda Lale Miller, who is the queen of contemporary Western fiction uh, in in the romance world, has a companion book to her Brides of Bliss County series set in uh, Mustang Creek, Wyoming. And then Diana Palmer's Christmas on the Range is another uh, cowboy Christmas story. Right. So. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see these kind of feel good stories get even more feel gooder. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, lots of readers really just love that sprinkling of Christmas magic. Yeah. And, yes. You know, <laughs> there's often not like a, an overt supernatural element of the angels bringing people together or whatever. It's more about just, um, togetherness at the holidays and maybe huddling together for right. warmth. So that's what we've got on the and hardcover on the range. fiction yep. list.
0: So nonfiction, we have at number six, Ann Romney, Mitt Romney's wife in this, in this together, my story. She talks about her, her life with Mitt and their, uh, when they met their teens, their five sons. And then also she talks about multiple sclerosis, which she was diagnosed with in 1998. So that's on number six. We don't have a review of that yet. We do have one of uh, a cookbook at number 12. I was really happy to see this one. This was kind of a, a, a personal favorite of mine. I I was actually surprised that it had gone all the way up there. I mean, we don't normally see cookbooks, but this is Frankie Avalon's Italian Family Cookbook from Mom's Kitchen. To mine and yours.
1: Oh, what a favorite of yours! Yes,
0: exactly. The uh, uh, singer and actor Frankie Avalon, and it um, uh, was written with this is with uh, Rick Rogers and uh, another cookbook author. Uh, you know, he's uh, he's a you know former you know the teenage film and music heartthrob. Now he's on QVC. He's a food real ta- retailer, and he presents eighty five family favorite recipes in this homage to his parents' Italian table. So we liked it well. And it's at number 12. That's good to see him. And, and, and it is the QVC that is bumping sales for this. undoubtedly. I imagine, I. Yeah. Uh, next up another, uh, food writer, Ruth Reichel, my kitchen year, 136 recipes that saved my life. Uh, she was the editor in chief of gourmet until 2009 when gourmet closed its doors. And, uh, uh, she was a former restaurant critic for the New York times. James beard award. She's written memoirs and, um, We say in this, Reichel reminds readers that getting lost in a recipe can be excellent therapy. So uh, we gave this a star, number 16. So, And then we aren't done with the cookbooks yet. We have at number 25, Brunch at Bobby's, 140 Recipes for the Best Part of the Weekend by none other than Bobby Flay. Uh, This is his 13th cookbook. And here we say these bold, flavorful moves uh, from Flay's breakfast playbook will leave readers salivating. Uh, Another uh, steady one by Bobby Flay. In the celebrity memoir category at number 30, we have Grace Jones. I'll never write my memoirs. Uh, we say, uh, Jones' outrageous influence endures to the present day. So it's disappointing that her memoir, Promising Blood and Thunder, instead turns into a litany of experiences lacking the spark that would keep the reader interested. So that's her review. And indeed, she has been sparking up a lot by, uh, by kind of um, criticizing current women singers and performers. Mm. Uh, so she's been getting a lot of heat from that, talking a lot. Number 30, bestseller. And at number 34, the last one I'm going to talk about is a starred review called Deep South by a travel writer Paul Theroux, who is best known for the Ghost Train to Eastern Star and several others. And here he travels throughout the American South. Um, um, he leaves New England where he's been living, but he travels to South Carolina, all the down through Arkansas texas mississippi and among the things he places he visits are um various gun shows which he says are kind of pop up every weekend no matter where in the south you are but um we gave it a starred review we say free of the sense of alienation that marked his recent travelogues this luminous sojourn is theroux's best outing in years wow so there you have it and the nonfiction, fiction we've got them all cookbooks celebrity memoirs travel books A little bit of everything. A little bit of everything.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Next up, graphic novelist Adrienne Tomina tells us how people get under one another's skin. We'll be right back. I'm Naomi Jackson, author of The Star Side of Bird Hill, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Adrian Tomina on the line. His new graphic collection is Killing and Dying. Hey, Adrian, so glad you could join us. Thanks for having me. So tell us about this new collection, Killing and Dying.
2: Yeah, well, it's a, it's a nice cheerful, uh, uplifting title. <laughs> right. but we, we can tell. We, we did a lot of market research to see what would be <laughs> the best uh, selling words to use in a title. Uh, and actually it's, um, it's, uh, the title's a little bit misleading and it's, um, it's, uh, a collection of six short stories, uh, that are told in, uh, comic form. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, which is a kind of a, long-winded way of, uh, responding to the title of, uh, or the term graphic novel, which, which doesn't quite fit with this since it's not a novel. Um, and it's, uh, it's, um, a very personal but fictional book that is, uh, hopefully, um, using kind of, uh, the small interactions of, of, of humans to, uh, I don't know, address uh, larger larger concerns of mine uh, that I had at the time of, of creating the book.
0: Well, you say, so some of your stories deal with relationships between men and women. And as we say in our review, the women are lost and the men lash out. Um, yeah. Talk to us about that.
2: Um, yeah, that question has come up a few times, and uh, I always wonder if there expecting me to say, well, I'm a a violent hothead and, (laughs) um, yeah, you know, it's, I I hope, I hope that it's not, um, when someone reads the book that there's uh, a bit more nuance to the, the relations between the characters and that it's not, um, a completely, uh, man bashing (laughs) kind of a book. Um, (laughs)
1: it didn 't feel like that to me, i mean it just i got the sense that um, it was more a way of uh, i certainly didn't get the sense that it was autobiographical, so you don 't have to worry about that, but right. um, you know just a sense that it was exploring ways that people kind of get under each other 's skin
2: yeah yeah, that's a good way of putting it um, it's living in new york that's certainly a ever present uh concern on my <laughs> on my brain as as you kind of make your way through the city and um uh yeah i think i think it's it's a lot that's that's a good general way of looking at it i think that um uh not so much by design but but subconsciously the the, the idea of um being a parent uh and some of the anxieties around that uh just uh, snuck into the book uh because uh i became a parent over the process of of creating the book and i think some of those uh, worries and and kind of hypothetical projections into the future and, and things like that entered into it, and and the flip side of that is is it's uh, in hindsight I see that there's a lot of stuff in there about being being a child or you know having parents and um, you know I think that's uh, it's you know that would be naturally on my mind at this time too, but I think uh, to a degree it's uh, about um, I was thinking about. Uh, Now that I'm a father, uh, how strange it must have been for for my parents to have me as a kid, you know, to have (laughs) someone, instead of uh, going out into the world and and socializing, choosing to stay in their room all day and and writing and drawing these kind of unusual comic book stories. And then, uh, you know, I I was publishing my work when I was still living at home. So Mm. uh, there was a time when I would work in my room with the door closed and, send stuff out into the world and they'd see it eventually <laughs>
1: <laughs> so this has been a lifelong thing for you yeah
2: I, that's un- unfortunately um it's it's kind of the only thing that i ever learned how to do because i i uh, got started very early and um had sort of a single-minded focus on it uh starting even when i was a little kid and i was interested in different kinds of comic books more like um more like the regular kind of comics that you'd get at a at a supermarket or something, and um, and I just completely focused on just that. I never I never learned any other skills. I <laughs> I couldn't be very good at any other job if I had to. Uh, um, and even even though I miraculously made it through the school system and went to college, uh, I think a good portion of that time was spent uh, thinking about and working on on comics. Mm. So let's
0: talk about a, let's talk a little bit about some of the stories in your book. And since you just mentioned that you're a new father, you do have one story in here about a, uh, I guess an awkward fourteen year old girl who stutters and and is about her relationship with her mother. Tell us about that story. Uh,
2: yeah, I, I I actually think it's a little bit more about her relationship with her father. But um, uh, yeah, it's. Um it's hard to say who the main character uh of that is um i think a lot of people will read it and just assume that i'm identifying with the, the father character because because of my present circumstances but um it's 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 sort of i feel like i'm sort of my 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 sympathies are sort of divided uh, amongst the three characters pretty equally uh, the mother the father and the and the daughter um and uh yeah I think it's um that is a strange story that uh, kind of combines a few real life experiences of mine um, in particular uh, attending uh, some very bad open mic comedy things uh, when I lived out in california
3: mm-hmm.
2: and um and just a lot of uh, concerns that uh, they, they sound sort of silly when i when i spell it out just uh, conversationally but uh, hopefully uh, are explored a little better in, in the story but about um how supportive you're supposed to be as a parent and uh what you're supposed to do if your child is pursuing something that maybe they're not particularly well suited for um and uh, how much do you protect them and how much do you have to let them kind of just uh you know, go out into the world on their own. Well, you know, that,
0: that is, you know, a a big, a big topic of conversation for, for parents these days. I mean, be it art, be it uh, singing or, or sports, you know, at what point do you, uh, you know, encourage them or let them say, you know what, maybe we should try something else. You know, how long do you let just let them follow, follow the dreams or whatever they want to do. And yeah, that's a, that's actually a, I, I think a very topical point.
2: Yeah and and I am just as confused about it as everyone else otherwise this would be a, a you know more of a kind of a didactic sure. uh, instruction manual or something and it's 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 not that at all and um uh you know it's 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 something that I think I'm just going to wrestle with forever and and there's uh you get so many different points of view we live in a neighborhood here in Brooklyn that is very family focused and there's all kinds of you hear about these things where there's sports leagues where there's no winners and losers. <laughs> and, right. Um, you know, that, uh, that it's okay for your kids to, to hit each other because they have to learn how to handle that. Or, or, you, or, you, or the opposite of that, you have to intercede at the slightest hint of violence. And right. uh, there, there's just so many things like that, that, that you almost get bombarded with as, as a parent, really. Yeah.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, I, I love the open mic Visuals, these sort of very stark, similar you know, one panel after another, because you're just watching this person standing up on on the stage, and <laughs> yeah. it really conveys that moment where you 're sitting in the audience waiting for something good to happen <laughs> yeah uh,
2: and and you might be waiting for quite a long time in some, in some yes. cases uh, but you know there's yeah, there's actually kind of two very distinct approaches to to making comics, and one is more of a cinematic approach where. Uh, it's almost as if the the panels on the page are um, camera angles and it sort of Mm -hmm. moves around and goes overhead and swoops around. And and that's a lot more common in in more like uh, superhero comics. Uh, And then the other school of thought is that it's more uh, theater related and the panel is like uh, a stage Mm. and and the characters move around within that. And that is often seen a lot more in traditional comic strips like like Peanuts is a great example of that right. um, and that was uh, uh, Peanuts in general has been a big influence on me but I was in particular thinking about that type of cartooning when I made that story uh, not just because a lot of it literally does take place on a stage
1: hmm so um, I don't think that a lot of people would look at your style and say, oh, wow, Charles Schultz, obviously a big influence. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. It seems like an unlikely connection.
3: Yeah, I,
2: um, I have some very obvious influences that people can uh, pick out right away and then some maybe not so much. And uh, uh, Charles Schultz might fall into that uh, second category. But um, uh, Peanuts is one of the few... Uh, bits of culture that uh, I've been a fan of for literally my entire life, um, and uh, probably enjoy just as much as a as a forty one year old uh, as I did when I was uh, a four year old. Um, and there's very few other things that I can think of um, that have been that consistent for me as a as a reader and as a fan. Uh, and so, while well, his his influence might not be Really, that apparent in how I draw, or even uh, exactly the the style of, of writing that I do um, i think uh, at at the core of what was a very commercial and, and mainstream uh, comic strip that I think has um, kind of a broader uh, perception as as this merchandise thing and, mm-hmm. and uh, the, uh, the the animated t v specials, but at its heart, I think it really was a lot about human interaction and, uh, neuroses. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I don't want to do the strip a disservice, but I think a lot of it has to do with struggling with depression and, yeah, and, absolutely. And, and social anxiety. Uh, so, you know, uh, it's, it's uh, it's right up my alley. <laughs> <laughs> when,
1: when you're growing up a depressed kid, you basically have two role models, which is Charlie Brown and Eeyore.
2: That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, point. so,
1: so uh, and, and, like, some, some of Peanuts can get really dark.
2: Oh, it really does, and 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 mm. one of the, another way that uh, Schultz's influence might be seen in my work is that there's, like you said, some very dark subject matter in there, but it's drawn in such a cute, appealing, and kind of simple way that it's almost like he's kind of sneaking it into the mainstream newspaper. It's sort of like this weird little window into his um into his mind, but he drew it in, in a nice way and so that it could sit right next to Beetle Bailey and, and, mm-hmm. and, and Garfield. Right.
1: Well, Garfield can be existentially yeah. grim too. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> Let's not forget that. Yeah. Um, so, especially
2: when, when Garfield is not present, right?
1: Yes, yes indeed. Um so uh so tell us a little bit about um some of the other stories in your book. Do you have a favorite? I know you're not like supposed to play favorites.
2: Right. Um no, I, I I don't know if I would say that I have a favorite. Um Well, I
0: I've got one I'm curious about. Uh sure. Go Isles about a middle aged pot dealer. Let's talk yeah. about middle age. Yeah.
2: <laughs> that's always a
0: sexy topic. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Tell us about that one. Uh
2: yeah, that's um you know, I approached all each of the stories in the book uh in in a in a different way after working on uh, on an earlier graphic novel called Shortcomings, I felt really um, freed up when I started this book, and I wanted to not be locked into one way of writing or one way of drawing for 100-something pages. So I approached each story in some different way, and um, Go Owls was one that I really thought of um, uh, almost like um, like, uh, memories, like scenes that I, I envisioned in my mind Um, that involved the visuals and the the dialogue all together. So it wasn't like I had an idea for a story and then I thought, how can I draw that? Or I had an image and I thought, what can I write about that? I sort of saw it all uh, entwined. And so it's drawn in um, a a page layout with a lot of little panels, um, uh, which I did in a way to sort of give me as many uh, uh, almost like musical beats per page mm. like that you could have you could have pauses you could have uh, staccato kind of rhythms all these things that um, the, the more more panels you have to play with the the, the the better
1: and a lot of there's a lot of narration in your book as well not not just dialogue but uh, to serve sort of narrative uh, expository sections over and among the panels.
2: Mm-hmm. Right, and so that's, that's the flip side of that. Instead of doing uh, kind of pure cartooning where the characters are moving around in the panels and speaking dialogue, uh, that's a different type of approach where you have it's more like an illustrated text where you have a chunk of narration and then an image that accompanies it. Um, so the story translated from the Japanese is, is a good example of that.
1: Hmm. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away.
2: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose
0: Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
1: I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio
0: every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
1: Welcome back. We're talking with Adrian Tomina, who's the author and illustrator and creator of Killing and Dying. And I was wondering how much say you had over the creation of the physical book since you're talking about page layout.
2: I um, actually had complete control, and uh, uh, it's, I, I can't say enough about um, my publisher, Drawn and Quarterly. I've uh, I've been with them since since the very start of my career. Uh, I don't know, twenty years ago or something like that. And uh, they really took a gamble on me before 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 they should have actually, uh, and have um, given me the same freedom uh, back then that they give me now. And uh, you know, I've changed a lot as an artist. The market mm. has changed. Um, the the company itself has changed my my original publisher stepped down last year and, and a new publisher took over um but uh, the the one constant thing is that they're very hands-off with me and they are very supportive and indulgent uh when it comes to things like production so um on this book uh i had the great fortune of working uh with uh a woman named Tracy Heron and she's on staff at Drone and Quarterly but uh we worked very closely on the design and the uh just the physical production of the book and um there were a lot of things that I knew that I wanted but didn't quite know how to go about achieving it like uh, the acetate cover was a good one mm. and um Tracy did a lot of the the heavy lifting to to make it work out as as well as it did
1: the cover's gorgeous. I spent a long time, just before I saw the physical book, just looking at it, going, how did they do that? Yeah.
2: Wow. Yeah, I, yeah. I, it was, I don't think it was a, a cheap process to, to arrive at that final product either, because we had many uh, trial runs where the printer would actually basically make a version of the book and put an acetate cover on it and send it to me from overseas, and then I'd look at it and say, oh, no, you know what? The edges are too sharp. It, it hurts my... It, it feels... <laughs> uncomfortable in my left hand when I'm trying to flip to the book, so let's try and fix that, and they'd go back and score it differently or or make the the jacket fit a little tighter or something. Um, So there were, I mean, and just the idea of a clear cover with white ink on it and there are so many things that I think if I was working for a different publisher, uh, these ideas would have just been dismissed in the the infancy stages.
1: So um yeah Just looking at the drawn and quarterly website, they say more books from Adrian tomina and then there's just an extremely long list you've got all the optic nerve books um, your uh, your New York stories, your scrapbook that's um, yeah. It's an incredible body of of work. How have these different projects sort of drawn you in different ways um,
2: That's a good question. I think that um, if someone is sort of really following my work very closely, so, like, my mom, you know, they would, <laughs> they would see that, that I basically have this sort of main focus, which is the, 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 the stories that are, uh, are originally published in the Optic Nerve comic book and then collected in books like Sleepwalk and Summer Blonde and now Killing and Dying, and that's the, the work that takes up the majority of my life. And then there are these little side projects that I take to give myself a break or to freshen up or to, um, you know, uh, mix up the, 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 the publishing schedule in a way. Like uh, So be- between Shortcomings and Killing and Dying, we put out uh, a book that collected all the illustration work that I've done for The New Yorker mm-hmm. uh, over the years. And we also did a book that was uh, a, basically a reprint of... The, the wedding favor that we gave out at at, at, uh, at our wedding years ago. I made a little mini-comic kind of about the process of, of us getting married, and John and we reprinted that as uh, scenes from an impending marriage. Huh. So,
0: how do you work? Uh, you know, what what comes first? Is it the artwork or the story? Do you have the story first?
2: Um, it's... Uh, well, the, 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 the physical work of actually getting the stuff down on paper... Can really vary. Um, In some cases, uh, I can have it planned out enough in my mind that I can actually just sit down and start drawing it uh, right directly onto the page. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the more complicated or difficult stories for me involve a lot of uh, drafts of uh, increasing polish. Um, But I think that the the real work, like the, the, the most time that I spend on Producing these stories is is intangible, and it takes place inside my brain. Mm. And um, uh, most of the stories uh, in Killing and Dying uh, were rattling around and, and evolving and, and uh, mutating in my brain for a long time before I ever put uh, pen to paper. And um, uh, so a lot of a lot of times, I'm you know just like watching my kid at the playground and in my brain i'm thinking oh man that story i'm working on <laughs> is a mess how can i fix it there's something that's really bothering me about it what is it uh and then when i finally get a chance later that night to sit down at the drawing board i try to implement some of those uh, changes that i might have made in my in my mind but a lot of it really is um it's not that different from the way children make up stories um i have really clear memories of being bored like uh, on a long car ride and sitting there and your brain kind of drifts and you start inventing some kind of weird story yeah um and that really is not changed that much for me and fortunately as a as a parent there's plenty of very boring (laughs) moments where my (laughs) mind can drift
1: so are are you a full-time parent you've mentioned parenting a lot is clearly a, a big thing for you
2: yeah, well I'm I've um uh, I've always worked from home, so uh I'm the more uh flexible <laughs> parent. Mm. Uh my my wife uh for the last few years was finishing up her PhD and writing her dissertation and doing a hospital internship and so uh was very busy with all that. Um so there were a lot of times where I was home alone uh with with the kids and um and now things are uh stabilizing a little bit but uh it's it's one of those things that uh originally I thought okay I got to just make it through this period where my wife is so busy and then I can sort of back out of all this responsibility and get back to work on on being a, a cartoonist full time and uh, I'm realizing now that that's actually kind of like the most terrifying prospect for me and that I really uh have grown accustomed to this life and that, um, in a lot of ways it would be, uh, very sad for me to not be so, so involved on a day-to-day basis.
1: So you've really found a way to have it all, I think is the, the phrase. <laughs> they say. I, these I, days. I don't know about that. I
2: think, I, let, let's not forget that, that this book took seven years to That's to true. Right.
1: Um so yeah, I was going to say shortcomings was two thousand seven. That's, that's quite a while oh, ago. How yes. how do you feel your work has changed in between the two collections? Um uh,
2: I think it changed a lot. Um uh and I think that's a good thing. I think um on a on a visual level, I think I've just uh opened myself up a little bit to, to working in different ways and um I think just slowly starting to become a little bit more comfortable with whatever might eventually be my own style. I think I started out as such a product of my influences and, um, it's been sort of a long process to to figure out what did I steal and what, what's really me. And, um, so I think between those two books, I've sort of, uh, uh, found a little bit more of a comfort zone in that regard. Um, and I think uh, also the the big change uh, in terms of the writing was that I allowed myself to um, break out of what I had come to find to be sort of a, a restrictive style. I, I, I had, uh, for some reason, um, I got a bit locked into this kind of subject matter of semi-autobiographical uh, sort of... Romantic, navel-gazing kind of stuff, which uh, to me was like the most important kind of stories you could tell when when you're in your 20s or something. Mm-hmm. And now at this age in my life, it doesn't quite resonate with me in the same way. It doesn't appeal to me, um, and I I don't quite have the the wealth of subject matter that <laughs> that I did when I actually was a uh, a young 20-something. Um, and so to to free myself from that and to be able to think about different types of characters and different aspects of, of life that might not have seemed cool or, or hip or whatever. Um, that was, that was a big change for me. And, uh, a lot of these stories and a lot of these characters, I don't think I ever would have, uh, come up with, uh, earlier in
0: my career well you'd also mentioned uh you had a a, a collection from your new yorker uh cartoons I, right. would it, so I, I imagine that uh being a contributor to the new yorker kind of forces you to get out of yourself or, or at least uh, think about things a little bit differently
2: yeah yeah i mean it's it's a um i'd say uh for the most part doing uh, my comics work and doing my illustration work are almost completely separate kinds of jobs. Mm. Uh, It gets a little hazier with The New Yorker because they do allow me so much freedom, and there is such a respect for me as a cartoonist. Um, In terms of, like, the cover illustrations that I do, uh, they really, um, the people that I work with are familiar with me as a cartoonist, and they have specifically asked me to, to try and imbue the images with, uh, a bit of a narrative and to try and, uh, express some sort of story through the image. Um, and that's not often the case with, with commercial illustration right. work. Um, and, but yeah, it, it, does, it does force you to, uh, look for subject matter outside of your own life. Uh, and like all, uh, illustration work, it's, it's, a collaboration rather than than working in in isolation the latest with my comics
1: and uh when when Mark was researching your biography, he turned up a thing that I thought was fascinating, which is that you write liner notes and create album art for bands, so it's totally different or it seems like it's totally different from this other much more narrative work you've done, and that someone else has created the narrative so how how does that work? do they come to you yeah there's there's a
2: uh, that's a whole kind of one of the the side uh, effects of of being a published cartoonist is you get uh offers to to collaborate um and uh in some cases it's a terrible idea <laughs> um, and and in, in some cases it's just a, a great experience like um there's there's a few a few bands that i've worked with uh, a few musicians or bands that i've worked with uh several times over the years uh one of them is uh, called Yola Tango. Mm-hmm. Sure. And another is called the Eels, and um, it's just uh, a really nice experience when when people who you are fans of or yeah. who you respect uh, already somehow uh, get in touch with you and and uh, uh, ask you to do what I think is just uh, such a such an honor to, to create artwork for to basically decorate their artwork. Um, You know, I think if I was a musician, I would be, uh, I would be more, (laughs) more controlling and I would want it to be (laughs) all about me. Not, not, you know, I made the music, so why is someone else's artwork going on the cover? But um, so it's, it's a, it's a real, it's a real honor when someone who I respect uh, reaches out to me
1: in that way. So um, what have, what have some of your favorite surprise commissions been?
2: Um, let me think. Uh, doing my first cover for The New Yorker was, was a surprise and has uh, led to so many so many great things. Um, some of the records um, have been, uh, I think, a really nice collaboration. Um, I've, I did a cover for uh, a collection that uh, Yola Tango did of... of, of live recordings where they're in in the studio of WFMU mm-hmm. and and for for a donation people can call in and request that they play any song and they have to just do it <laughs> um whether they know it or not and uh so I did sort of a, a comic strip cover for that album and that was that was a great thing to be a part of cuz uh, that was something that I'd actually just been a fan of when I was right. younger I would I would listen to that radio broadcast um, yeah on, and Yola
0: Tango just had a uh, reunion of sorts or a um, anniversary of sorts I should say.
2: Yeah, that's right. I'm yeah. I'm I'm going to see them uh, on Saturday night at, in the, at the at the King's Theater. Yeah. Um and also I've I've done a lot of work with with the eels and um the the guy in the band he's kind of like the one constant member. Uh his name's uh Mark Everett. Uh, has just been a great a great guy to know for for a long time and um he's really uh let me illustrate some of his more personal uh, albums um uh, and and my, they happen to also be my favorite music of his, so that just always feels like a a great honor to be attached to something like that
1: well um yeah i I know that you're going on tour for this uh book, which is really exciting and not something you hear about a lot for uh graphic works are you are you looking forward to it are you dreading it?
2: uh yeah the latter probably um it's uh it's it, you're yeah, right it's it's a strange thing because um i actually have to um go do the first uh event tonight uh here in brooklyn and um i was and we're talking about i'm going to be doing a reading and then a uh kind of a on stage interview and i was thinking that it's so strange that when i was a kid i decided to be a cartoonist partially because i thought it was the one career where I would never have to do public speaking. <laughs> um, I, I, I thought that and I would. Now you know. Yeah, I thought it would. You know, I thought I would be. Uh, not only would I not have to do public speaking, but I thought I would be completely anonymous. Because at the time, mm-hmm. I was really interested in very mainstream superhero comics. And you just. I, as a kid, I remember reading the credits, and there were like six guys. One guy did the lettering, one guy did the coloring and right. the inking and all this. And I just. To me, that was really appealing to just be. Uh, some part of a team that no one really knows who you are, <laughs> uh, and just and sits in uh, his studio and, and does the work every day. Um, and so it's it's uh, for the most part a really fortuitous uh, twist that 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 that's not how I ended up. But um, it is it is strange to ask a, a cartoonist to go out and and face the public and and have his picture taken and 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 all that um and especially it's hard for me because uh I am a fairly private person and I think that something about these stories invites a lot of questions about the connection between the fiction and my own <laughs> real life and my own experiences uh which can sometimes be
1: uncomfortable to talk about yeah well Good luck with it. Well,
3: thank you. <laughs>
1: and uh, you know, the whole the whole tour list is on the DNQ website. If people want to follow you along.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm honored. Uh, I'm honored to do it, and uh, I will. will make my best effort to, uh, <laughs> to be a public figure for the next month or so.
1: Well, good luck. We've been talking with Adrian Tamina, and you can find his graphic collection, Killing and Dying, in stores right now. Adrian, thank you so much for taking the time for this. It's been great talking with you.
0: Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. I'm Mark Rotella.
1: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, PW senior bookselling editor, Judith Rosen, talks about what's hot in YA, so stay tuned.
2: I'm Buzz Bissinger, the author
0: of Friday Night Lights, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
1: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW's senior bookselling editor, Judith Rosen, is calling in to tell us all about PW's upcoming young adult feature. Hi, Judith. Hi, Rose. Hi, Mark. Hello. It's really great to have you on the show as always. Um and tell us a little bit about where you're calling from. It's not your usual location. No, it's
3: not. This is the season where all the bookselling groups around the country hold their uh, conferences. And I'm calling from mountains and plains in Denver, Colorado.
1: Well, that sounds like a good time. And, uh, your piece for PW, the, the YA features also about events, except in this case, it's young adult book events. So tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, YA has been pretty hot for a lot of booksellers. Um, Obviously, series like Hunger Games and Divergent and um, John Green's books have been doing very well. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of booksellers and publishers have wanted to see if they could reach even more people who uh, read and enjoy YA with uh, just having more special events. Some stores aren't even doing readings or question and answer sessions, like we think of in typical bookstore events, Um, but they're doing more like costume parties. Oh, fun. Uh, Yeah. And one store in New York City, which actually gets a lot more adults than it gets teens, does a lot of alcohol and fun and games, like uh, (laughs) newlyweds game with authors to see how much they know about each other.
1: (laughs) Well, That that sounds great. So you were very specific when you said people who read young adult books. So you're not saying for young adults, and obviously, you know, not every party is going to have booze, but it sounds like adults are very welcome.
3: Exactly. Um, Obviously, those books are marketed to teens, uh, but A lot of people in their 20s, 30s, and older even have found that they're just really fun to read. They have good storylines. There's not a lot of extraneous detail information. They get to the heart of the matter, and they're just beautifully written books, so um, some people as teenagers started reading them, and I've never stopped. And some people started reading them just because they wanted to know more and got hooked.
0: And I've also heard of, of uh, I think, some, some events that were mother-daughter. I mean, I remember when, when we had written about it, you know, as, as we, we realized, the world realized that, that uh, moms or parents were, were starting to read the books that their kids were, that their teenagers were, they started having events. Is that true?
3: Um, That is true. I remember having a good friend who read Twilight when her daughter was in high school, and now her daughter is all grown up. Twilight's marking its 10th anniversary this year. Wow. And um, I know, makes me feel a little old, but uh, (laughs) she, my friend just never stopped reading YA. Twilight got her hook, and she enjoys reading it, and that's what
1: happened to a lot of folks. Hmm. That's so interesting. So tell us more about some of the creative events that you've heard about bookstores doing uh, for these books.
3: Uh, Well, uh, I was particularly excited with one that uh, originated with Marvel, and they're actually sending um, Margaret Stoll on a six-city tour for Black Widow Forever Red. And um, they're doing it as part of a Women of Marvel tour. Mm -hmm. They've done Women of Marvel events at some of the um, Comic-Cons, but this is the first time they've taken a novel and launched it with a lot of different folks who work at Marvel. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to give fans um, insight into how the industry works and to learn a little bit about the mainstreaming of geek culture. So, I think it should be uh, fun for those who get to hear her. Uh, They're having some of the comic book writers tour with her and people from the social media division. So, I I think that's definitely fun. Um, One store, Malaprops in um, Asheville, North Carolina, has been, has a huge, huge number of authors who live in that community, not just adult writers, but a lot of YA writers, and they found that what's really successful for them is putting together an event with several of those writers and getting them together and just letting them talk about the craft. Um, A -hmm. lot of young people really enjoy writing and want to know more, and some of those parents who are are reading YA, would like to know more about how it all works. So that's been a lot of fun, and the authors enjoy it so much that a few of them even bake and bring in goodies.
1: Oh, wow. So
3: this is really sort I have to that, get down there for those cupcakes. Yeah, right. yeah definitely.
1: This sounds like there's sort of a, a family reunion kind of vibe. <laughs> um, exactly.
3: And uh, closer to where I live in Boston, um, at Porter Square Books, They do a lot of launch parties for authors, and in fact, they're lucky enough to have several authors on their staff. Uh, Marika Makula, who wrote Baba Yaga's Assistant, um, and Mackenzie Lee, who wrote This Monstrous Thing. So they've done some great events with what they call their very local authors.
1: (laughs) Yes. It's uh, like when I, I go to shows in Brooklyn and they say, and now, all the way from Brooklyn, Exactly, (laughs) exactly. But it is
3: fun to celebrate um, a bookseller who you may have worked with and gotten his or her suggestions um, for great books to read. And now you're getting to hear them talk about their own book. So definitely fun. So for for
0: one of the events like the uh, the uh, the newlyweds one where there might be alcohol, how do they do they charge? Do, do would bookstores charge a uh, like a nominal cover charge, or maybe include the book? How how does this work?
3: Um, I'm not sure that that particular bookstore does charge, but many bookstores um, to ensure that. Uh, that the people who attend really support their events have begun doing for YA events what they've done for adult author events for a while now, which is charge the price of a book for admission. Now, as you know, uh, some YA readers, although we were talking about some older YA readers, some younger YA readers don't actually have a driver's license. Mm. And um, for those folks... Th- they probably their parents may not want two copies of the same hardcover book, mm. so they will have a what they call the primary ticket, and the primary ticket holder gets the oh, book right. and pays the money, and then they will allow them to have like a ticket for mom or dad or,
0: oh, or of sister course your brother, right, right.
3: So
1: a plus one of sorts,
3: <laughs> exactly a plus one. So that's what. Um, that's what Little Shop of Stories in Decatur, Georgia did uh when they had a big event with Ransom Riggs. They did one for Halloween with costumes and they had video book bloggers, and um it was very fun. Ransom Riggs does the Miss Peregrine's peculiar children series mm-hmm. and uh, So they knew there would be a lot of parents probably driving for that one. So they did that. Oh, and the kids even got a goodie bag. So booksellers really try to make it worth worth their while. Mm -hmm. So,
0: so when has this started? When did this? uh, When did uh, YA start? You know, bookstores start start doing this for YA books. Is this how, how new is this?
3: It's not so much that it's new to have a YA author come in, but I think what's different. Is to have maybe multiple YA authors come in, which mm. booksellers refer to as pairings. I love the idea of author right. pairings. Right. And um, sometimes these pairings are come from the publisher. They'll they'll choose several um, authors to tour together. Um, I think Penguin was one of the earliest with. Uh, something they call Fierce Reads, which they do in the spring and fall, and they're about to do their 13th Fierce Read tour. Um, and sometimes the authors will just say, hey, I. I have a good friend who has a book coming out at the same time, and could we just put these tours together? <laughs> uh, I know there's a tour like that for Alex Bracken and Susan Denard, um, one published by Hyperion, the other by Tor. So it's, I think it's kind of taking these events to a new level and making them, making them truly something special to come out to and to remember mm-hmm. both the author and the book by.
1: Yeah, definitely. So um, when you mentioned costumes, I was thinking of people cosplaying their favorite characters or so on, Um, but that would suggest that it's really existing fans coming out to these events. How much are they reaching new fans or people who might become new fans?
3: I think they are actually reaching new fans. I think, um, well, I, I think the pairings are particularly nice because you might know one of the, one author there but you might not know, um, the other authors. And so you have this opportunity suddenly to meet an author in another way and sample their work and say, Oh yeah, maybe I'd like to read a little bit more. So, um, you know, some well-known authors will, uh, will appear on their own. Somebody like Ali Kandi. Mm-hmm. uh, but um, other authors will be paired together, or maybe a publisher will pair a, a really well-known author with somebody not quite as well-known. And it just makes it, I think it just makes it fun. It's a way to find out about new writers. So yes, some of the people who are drawn to this might be familiar with YA books. But I do think it's it's reaching out to uh, new audiences and different topics, like like the Marvel tour. You might be interested in Marvel, but you might not know that you were interested in some of the authors they publish. Right, you might just think of Marvel in a very particular way. So um, it kind of breaks that pattern too.
1: Yeah, I, I actually, I didn't know that Marvel was doing novels now. I thought it was uh, all still comics and graphic novels. So that's exciting.
3: Yeah. So I I think it's, I think it's fun and the idea that reading books is fun I think is important. It counteracts that thing that some people got in school where uh because books get dissected so much in English class that
1: they forget that they're just plain fun to read. Right. Well, as a critic I've run into that sometimes myself. I have to remember that I can turn off the critical part of my head and just enjoy a book. Yes, you don't even have to mark typos. <laughs> right, right. It's, it's very refreshing. Well, um, Judith, thank you so much. When is this feature appearing in PW?
3: Um, it will be in Monday's issue on October twelfth, and that's available online as well.
1: Well, that's fantastic. We'll keep an eye out for it. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And now, a final word from our sponsors. I'm Naomi Novik, author of Uprooted, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
1: Join us next week for another delicious author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on AudiobookRadio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.